If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided here, you can find the passage on page 164. 164. While you're turning here, let's just remember what the the book of Deuteronomy is about and and where we are in our study of this book. Uh, The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons by Moses um, given on the edge of the promised land. The people of Israel, they've they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They have wandered for 40 years in the wilderness due to their disobedience. And now Moses is re-explaining God's law as they prepare to enter God's land. All in all, we could summarize the message of Deuteronomy in this way. God loves his children and his children are to love him. As we study Deuteronomy 22 and 23 together this morning, what we're going to find is that love for God is also displayed in keeping God's law. That's how His children express their love for Him, by keeping God's law. Now, perhaps you've you've already kind of glanced at Deuteronomy 22 and 23, and you've thought to yourself, what binds these laws together? I mean, the the first and last sections of the headings of Deuteronomy 22... And the the last section of Deuteronomy 23, they're titled Various Laws and Miscellaneous Laws. Uh, And and so a natural question for for readers like us is this. Is there any unity in these two chapters? Uh, The answer is yes. They're certainly united by the one God who gave these laws through Moses. But they're united by more too. They're united, I think, by a concern for purity. Uh, We'll see a refrain throughout these uh, chapters of purge or purify this evil from among you. Uh, Purity, or we could call it holiness, is necessary because the perfectly pure and holy God lives with His people in His land. Purity is pursued not only by, by avoiding the misuse of something, but also by the proper the, the sanctified or the holy use of something. That's a, a holistic way to view purity. Proper use and avoidance of misuse. Structurally, let me just kind of explain how I think these two chapters work together. At the beginning and at the end, we've got these various or miscellaneous laws that in truth communicate, I think, overarching principles with respect to purity. You can think of the beginning of chapter 22 and the end of chapter 23 as as bookends. And in the middle, we've got specific applications of purity with respect to personal or married relationships and purity with respect to the covenant community. So we'll approach these two chapters under three headings. Number one, principles of purity. Number two, purity in personal relationships. And number three, purity in the covenant community. So let's take a look first at at the bookend. So we're going to look at the beginning of Deuteronomy 22 and the end of Deuteronomy 23 where we find the principles of purity. And this is going to be the longest point because we're setting up the framework for how to think about these other things. So these bookends. Here we're looking at the principles of purity. So please follow along as I read from Deuteronomy 22. Let me read verses 1 to 12 for us to begin. Deuteronomy 22 verses 1 to 12. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. 
And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree on the, or on the ground with young ones or eggs, the mother and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you, shall make, you, sh- you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Well, you can see here uh, the reason why the, the, the editor of this translation, the ESV, or perhaps other translations, might select the title like Various Laws. Um, it, it's true that these verses address specific and particular issues and behaviors among the people of Israel, but they also represent cases illustrating, I think, deeper principles of purity. After all, purity is not only separation from sin, but it's also proper and holy, consecrated use. In these verses that we just read, we're looking at both, really. And so here's, here's how I'd summarize the principles that we see in these verses. And I'm going to try and work them out for us. Um, here's how I'd summarize these principles. God calls His people to be distinct in His world. God calls His people to be distinct in His world. And God's people do this by living according to His design, devoted to His laws, and through selfless love and service of others. Let's begin at the end of these verses, or toward the end of these verses. I think they present a more obvious call to purity. Take a look at verses 9 through 11. Set your eyes on them. You see, these verses prohibit, uh, in different ways, they prohibit mixing. You're not supposed to sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or, or plow a field with two different kinds of animals, or wear clothing of two different kinds of material mixed together. Now, we could come up with eminently practical reasons for these instructions. Israelite farmers may unknowingly sow one kind of seed which which overtakes another. After all, they haven't been farming for 40 years. They've been wandering in the wilderness. They may farm less efficiently if they put an ox and a donkey together. Uh, After all, an ox would pull harder than and faster than a donkey. Uh, These things very well could be true. Uh, and, And maybe there is some other similar reason for the clothing bit. But do not fail to notice what binds these various laws, so-called various laws, together. The principle of not mixing things. What is really going on here is God is embedding within the daily lives of Israel pictures of purity. They are to be a pure people. As God's people, they are to be distinct, different, and marked out from the world. Even their their clothing would mark this different. Those tassels spoken of in in verse 12 would visually distinguish them from other nations and other people. And and do you know what those tassels represent? Well, Numbers 
chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. Feel free to read that later. But Numbers, chapter 15, verses 37 to 41, tell us the purpose of these tassels. And what those verses tell us is those tassels were to be a reminder of God's law. They were to be a reminder of God's law and Israel's need to keep it. They were on the, the four corners of their garments, visually surrounding them as a reminder that their whole lives are to be lived keeping the law of God and oriented toward Him and loving Him, displayed in keeping His law of love. God's people were to be distinct from the world, which meant that they were to live according to a different standard, God's standard. And purity presupposes living according to a rule, not your own, to, to an objective rule, to God's rule. So living in humble and loving submission to God's rule is the way to lead a pure and holy life. And the commands of verses 1 to 8 reveal this pursuit of purity by living under God's good rule and reign. Verses 1 to 4 express how Israelites were to relate to their brother and his property. They were called to serve their brother when he lost his ox. They were either to take it back to him or to hold it for him until he came looking for it. And the same is true of anything else lost by a fellow Israelite. You see that in verse 4. You don't, you, you don't get to keep what you find. That amounts to stealing from your brother. In other words, you must serve your brother. Unless you're tempted not to serve your brother, Moses adds verse 4. If your brother is in need, you need to help him. You cannot be selfish. You can't neglect your brother. You can't neglect his property. You can't be selfish in neglecting your brother's need. Do you see the principle in these verses your life cannot be consumed by love of self. No. If, if you claim to serve God, then you must also serve your brother. If you claim to love God, then you must also love your brother. You know, sometimes as New Covenant believers, we are tempted to look down upon the saints of old. We're tempted to look down upon Old Covenant Israel, but we, can, can we really do that? I mean, aren't we prone to neglect the need of our brothers and sisters in Christ because it might take a lot of time and effort and energy. It might eat up even some of our own resources. It might be a hassle. We, we might even think to ourselves, you know, someone else will help with that. Moses said, help your brother. Be proactive, actually. Take his ox back to him. Or be protective, Take good care of that ox until he comes for it. The Apostle Paul exhorts us as believers in Jesus Christ to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says something in Galatians chapter 6.10 that we should heed. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's give thanks that Jesus always served those in need, even when he was tired and weary. Let us imitate Jesus and let us meet the needs of our fellow church members. Does it surprise you that, verses, that like verses 1 to 4, verse 5 is also concerned with loving God and loving your neighbor? Here we are met with a command that addresses the problem of transvestitism. Uh, Deuteronomy is not distant from our day. Cross-dressing occurs in our day. And it occurred in Moses' day too. What's, what's really going on here? This command is not given for the purpose of preventing women from wearing pants or trousers, as they might say in the UK. 
uh, they're not, these, this verse is not given for the purpose of ruling out man buns. No, in fact, Moses, he doesn't give particulars. He seems to assume that his hearers know exactly what he's talking about. So, so what is this command concerned with? Well, this command is concerned with something I think that's deeply fundamental. It is first concerned with hatred of God. Is it not a complete and total act of rebellion to disdain the body and the biological sex that the Lord gave you? See, God has made us male and female. Genesis 1.27. He's made us male and female. We are called to live as men and women. Attempting to suppress our God-given biological sex is nothing less than attempting to suppress the truth. Moreover, attempting to address and present yourself as someone of the opposite sex is actually unloving to your neighbor. It's confusing at best and a lie at worst. A lie about God and about yourself. You are not who you feel you are. You are who God made you to be. A man or a woman bearing His glorious image. I assume that we will have image bearers come through our doors, the doors of our church, who present themselves as someone other than who God made them. We want them to know that they are welcome here. We want to invite them to faith in Jesus. We want to be patient, loving, kind, and generous. We want to recognize that these friends are struggling to embrace the body and biological sex that God gave them. They're struggling in rebellion against God. They're rejecting the God who made them. And just as we call sinners, including Christians, because we are, just as we call sinners, all sinners, to repent of known sin, so we want to lovingly invite them to come to know the joy of repentance. Such purity and clarity with respect to our biological sex reveals that we are subjects of God within His created order. And though we are made in God's image and called to exercise dominion over it, that does not mean we can use God's creation whatever way we choose. It's not our creation, it's His. Living a life of holiness and purity before God requires the constant recognition that we do not have unrestrained dominion in this world. We do not have unrestrained rule in this world. We must actually live in such a way that displays our care for others. And verses 6 through 8 express this. The reason that God's people are not to take the mother when they come upon a mother sitting on the young and on the eggs is expressly stated there at the end of verse 7. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. See, if the Israelites were to indiscriminately take the mother and the young, then they're acting in a short-sighted manner and contributing to the elimination of their own food supply. Uh, this is somewhat akin to what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where God gave the prohibition of cutting down the fruit-bearing trees in the time of war. By preserving the mother, they were preserving the food supply for themselves, for their neighbors, and those who followed after them for years to come. It would be an act of, of selfishness and greed, not to mention short-sighted folly to act in such a manner. But in showing restraint... You actually show love for your neighbor and for future generations. Well, I trust how you can see God's love for neighbor is evident in verse 8. 
A parapet is, a, is either a kind of wall or a fence. Such a structure would prevent the unnecessary loss of life. We actually have a parapet here at the church. I don't know if you know this, but down at the end of our education wing, we've got a, a flat roof and there's a wall that comes up about three or four feet. Anyway, we have a parapet here at the church. Uh, here, uh, the people of Israel are reminded that human life is a gift from God worthy of protection. The people of Israel are being encouraged to forsake carelessness for carefulness. That's what we teach our kids today, isn't it? Don't we call them to be careful not to run over their little brothers and sisters and trample on them? Don't we call them to be careful about knocking others over and off their feet? Yes, we do. Uh, and such an orientation reminds us that this world is not ours, but God's. He, he put other people in this world, and we are called to live in this world considering others more important than ourselves. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And that even means for the people of Israel paying the additional money, so don't be cheap, pay additional money and put a parapet up around your home so that the loss of human life is prevented. Do you see how the opening verses of Deuteronomy 22 are, are oriented toward God, toward loving God and, and loving others? Do you see how an abiding principle of purity is not, a is, is, is not only a denial of sinful selfishness, but also a purposing to live as God intended and designed? To, to live as His humble image bearer, serving and protecting others. In other words, to live with the kind of care that reflects His care for us. And the same is true of the latter verses of chapter 23. Go ahead and move your eyes over to the, to the last part of Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 25. You'll see there in verses 15 to 16 of Deuteronomy 23, we're told how the people of Israel are to receive slaves who, were, who escaped from other nations. Living in purity toward them means welcoming them and protecting them. In, in all likelihood, they're, they're fleeing from a harsh taskmaster. The people of Israel knew what that was like when they lived in Egypt. They knew what it meant to be slaves. And acting in purity toward these escaped slaves means not, not returning them to bondage, nor placing them in bondage, but inviting them to live within Israel as free men and women, allowing them to live as God made them to live, free and under His good care. How kind and good and loving of our God. His law is good because He is good. After verse 16, Moses proclaims that those who are serving the tabernacle are to be pure. No men or women may serve as a cult prostitute, nor may funds from a cult prostitute be used in the house of the Lord. Verse 18. That's what the nations of Canaan did. That's what the, the other nations did in the ancient Near Eastern world. But it was not to be so with God's people. Israel was to be separate from this sin. They served a, a different God, and so they, they worshipped God differently. The, the worship of God's people today is also to be different from the worship of the world. And the only way that our worship uh, remains pure today is by giving it to Jesus and giving our worship to Him in the way that He alone makes possible and in the way in which He proscribes. See, God's Word gives us direction for what we are to do. We can't make it up. He hasn't left that option up to us. We can't just do whatever we feel like doing. No, God has told us what we must do in our worship. 
in the scriptures, our God has told us that we must sing and we must pray and preach and read and proclaim Jesus in the ordinances. So our worship as a congregation, I hope, is, is simple, but I pray that it's strikingly different from the worship of the world. The essential distinction and difference between Israel and the surrounding nations would even work its way down into their everyday economic structures. You see that in verses 19 and 20. Israel could not charge their brothers interest in cases of lending, but they could charge foreigners interest on their loans. You see that difference between God's people and the people of the world. Yes, they, they, they had to act differently toward their brothers. But it's striking to think that, that immediately, this is immediately followed up in verses 21 and 23 by a call for purity in keeping your vow to God. An obvious implication with such commands side by side is that the people of God are to keep their commitments both to God and to men, giving both what is justly due to them. Not only should God's people give what is justly due, they must also refrain from unjust taking. You see, the, the verses that close the chapter, verses 24 and 25, call for purity in how you relate to your brother's property. While you may fill your tummy in the vineyard, you may not fill your bag. Uh, a similar prohibition is given with respect to grain. And what is, what is undergirding this is the truth that you are not the owner of the field. So you can't act like it. You can't just take what you want. You, you can't treat your brother's property like it's yours. Because it isn't. You, you can't play finders keepers. For that amounts to robbing your brother. It is human nature to want to treat the property of others as our own. We have envious hearts, don't we? You know, and with that, we've really actually come full circle. Did you notice that we've returned back to the vineyard, which was mentioned in the opening verses of Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 and 10, to be specific, verse 9 to be specific. We've returned back to a field where an ox would plow. The ox is, of course, mentioned in verses 1 and 10. And more fundamentally, we've returned back to purity with respect to how you relate to your brother's property. I hope you can see why I called uh, the beginning and end of Deuteronomy 22 and 23 uh, bookends. They're examples that uh, enunciate principles of purity for God's people. And what are those principles? Well, God's people are to be distinct and different from the world, even visually so. Their lives were to be marked out. They, they do this by living according to God's design as revealed in creation and revealed in His law, so they remain devoted to His laws. And they show selfless love and service toward others. This is how the proper use and avoidance of sinful and selfish misuse is worked out in the lives of the people of God. And, and when we step back and consider and read these laws from a, a wide-angle perspective, shouldn't we think of Jesus? I mean, He perfectly lived according to God's design and law. He lived in perfect love and service of His neighbor, he spent himself serving those in need. You know, whenever anyone who was ill or sick or dead came to him, he served them and loved them and restored them to perfect health. Jesus came to serve. He came to serve you and me. See, we have failed to keep these laws and act in purity and holiness toward God and toward our neighbor and toward our our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Jesus, praise God, Jesus has done what we have failed to do. He is able to save us from the law's condemnation, as we read earlier. 
And we do not trust in our purity, but in His. And we know that our Father accepts His perfect and pure keeping of the law for us because He was raised from the grave. We have seen in these two chapters put forward principles of purity, namely that God's people are, are distinct from the world. God's people gladly embrace God's design for their lives as revealed in His created order and in His law. And God's people are devoted to serving their neighbors. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 30, these principles are brought to bear on personal relationships. So let's turn and consider our second point, purity in personal relationships. Purity in personal relationships. And as we think about this, um, please follow along as I read. Let me read verses um, 13 to 21 of Deuteronomy chapter 22. 13 to 21. If any man takes a wife and goes into her, and then he hates her, and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. And he may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the, her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Well, depending upon how you count them, the verses that we have just read describe the first of five or six separate cases of sexual impurity found in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 30. The remaining cases may be described as, as adultery, that's verse 22, adultery with a betrothed or engaged woman, verses 23 and 24, the rape of a betrothed woman, verses 25 to 27, the seduction of a betrothed, uh, sorry, the seduction of a virgin who is not betrothed, verses 28 and 29, and improper family, uh, improper relations with family, verse 30. Now, we're not going to walk through the details of all six cases. I don't think that we need to because the principles of, of purity and personal relationships, I think, can mainly be established in the first case. Uh, the remaining cases are simply an outworking of the principles found there, embedded in this first case, in different scenarios. So all this is to say uh, that we're going to be summarizing some of this material. And if you've got a question about a particular case that you feel we've passed over too quickly, and please feel free to find me at the door after the service and follow up with a specific question in the first case. You see that one found there in what we've just read, verses 13 to 21. A newly married woman's sexual purity is called into question. Now carefully observe what is simply assumed by Moses. Moses assumes that women are, are, are to abstain from sexual intimacy until they are married. That's the basic assumption. And the same is true for men as well. 
like circumcision, like as just as circumcision, was the sign of the old covenant, and baptism, a sign of the new covenant, sexual union is the sign of the covenant of marriage. The, the second to last case, the seduction of a virgin who is not betrothed, verses 28 and 29, make this very point. The two actually skip right over uh, the period of engagement and are constituted as married in the eyes of the law because they have already entered into the one flesh union. They've already displayed the sign of the covenant through sexual intimacy. The covenant of marriage, the scriptures teach, is the only proper place for sexual expression. Any and all sexual expression outside the bounds and bonds of the covenant of marriage is contrary to God's design and law, and therefore considered sin. Again, in this first case found in Deuteronomy uh, verses 13 to 20, 21, a newly married woman's sexual purity is called into question, and there may be two end results from this case. Either it is proven that she has concealed her sexual impurity previous to her marriage, verses 21 and 22, or the man uh, to whom she's now married was lying and he was slandering her because he hated her, as we're told earlier on. He, he was slandering her and her family name. We see that in verses 18 and 19. So we are fully justified, I think, in identifying these matters related to purity, especially due to the fact that the language, so you shall purge, or we could say purify, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, occurs over and over again in verses 13 to 30. Now, let's be honest about our own situation and our own context. This does not make sense to the modern mind. Men and women are positively encouraged to explore their sexual compatibility with others prior to the marriage relationship. But from the principles of purity which bracket this passage, and from other portions of Scripture, we know that this is not God's design for men and women. It is not what God has revealed in His law and in His word. And sexual exploration outside the bounds of marriage is also unloving to your fellow image bearer. Sexual intimacy has been designed for the covenant of marriage alone. And the reason for that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage was designed by God to teach us about Jesus and His exclusive love for His bride, the church. In love, the Lord Jesus has given Himself only to one bride, to the church. All marriages in this world, all marriages in this world are called to reflect, to testify to, and portray that exclusive covenant love between Jesus and the church. This was even partially revealed in the Old Testament where God's relationship with the people of Israel is described in the prophets in that of a marriage relationship. So just think of the book of Hosea or Jeremiah, for example. God is upset with His people because they've gone after other lovers. The marriage relationship between God and His people is displayed as a marriage relationship between God and Israel. He calls for exclusive love within the covenant of marriage. Now, I, I, I do not think that we would be surprised if it were the case that in the, the vast majority of marriages today, that men and women come to the, the wedding ceremony with sexual impurity in their past. Now, that, that may have been the case with many of us here today. What each one of us needs to know is this, is that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There's welcome in Jesus. For those of you for whom marriage may be in your future, I am persuaded that you must know 
that if the Lord Jesus is willing to forgive sexual sin, so should you. We know that the Lord Jesus is eager to forgive sexual sin from John chapter 4 in John's gospel. In that passage, Jesus lovingly confronts, so he doesn't brush the issue of sin aside, but he lovingly confronts this woman at the well. She was a woman who he knew to be involved in a sexually impure relationship. And what that woman at the well came to understand about Jesus is that he fully knew her and everything she had ever done. And he fully loved her. He loved her with all of his heart. Jesus knows everything about every sin we have ever committed. And he loves us and promises us forgiveness in himself. Jesus is a savior who is worthy of our love and faith. And and one of the challenges of reading through these laws is that we are prone to think that they, and as a result, God, is backward and unjust. We're prone to think that these laws are backward and unjust, but the truth is they provide justice, protection, and provision for the innocent. For, for example, the woman who is falsely accused, she's given justice, and so is her family, by the way. Note in verses 16 and 17 that her parents are held responsible for her sexual purity. They're even given an opportunity to defend her honor and their honor. This is um, likely not going to work out the, the same way in the New Covenant community, but if I may, I think moms and dads, I would suggest to you that as long as your children are under your roof, it is not wrong for you to pursue protecting your children and their sexual purity. This, I think, is a, a loving law for women. A falsely accused woman is to be given justice. Her name is to be vindicated and she is provided provision and unbreakable protection through this marriage relationship. Now, we may object to the idea or at the idea embedded in verse 19 that she shall be married, she shall be this man's husband all the days of his life. But this was God's design from the very beginning. Marriage was always intended to be a lifelong covenant. Moreover, this law would discourage a man from falsely accusing his bride. If the man's accusation were true, however, this new bride would bear the same punishment as those who were discovered committing adultery. That's the the case that we find in verse 22. Note there that the punishment is both death for the man and for the woman. They are violating the covenant of marriage and thus lying about the loyal love that God has for His people. This is not to be tolerated among the ancient people of God. And here we see a case of excommunication, we could call it excommunication by death, excommunication from the covenant community. It's an evil because it's contrary to God's design. It's not what is revealed in God's law. It lies about His own love for His people. And it is unloving to your spouse and even your fellow adulterer. The same is true for the sexual impurity we find in the case of adultery with a betrothed or an engaged woman. In verses 23 and 24, you see a covenant, that's what an engagement was in the ancient world, a covenant's been violated. Now the mention of the city and the fact that the engaged woman did not cry out clues us into the fact that this was a consensual affair. Homes in the city uh, were situated almost on top of each other and there was precious little privacy 
uh, in the homes themselves. Maybe a curtain separated some rooms. If the woman cried out, she would have been heard in the city. The consequence of this is that she has violated her engagement covenant. She's committed adultery against her soon-to-be husband. And that is why she and the man are put to death. The woman in the country, however, was not willing. She did not wish to be involved with this man, but sadly she was preyed upon and no one heard her cry. And the man who did this must die, Moses says in verse 25. Moses, notice here what he does. He likens the attack upon the woman to that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. What is more, Moses tells us in verse 26, that this woman who was raped is not to be treated with shame. No, she didn't do anything wrong. She is to be cared for. And this is what we as a church should do, must do, and will do for any woman or sister in Christ who has been attacked in such a manner. And I want you to know that the elders of this church are committed to your care, to your hope, and to your healing. You know, from time to time in these verses, we read that a man may not divorce her all his days. And many are put off by this thinking that the women are really getting the short end of the stick. And I think that if we were to interview men and women in the ancient Near Eastern world, that they would have a different take on these laws than we have today. Uh, Men would likely testify and say that these laws are incredibly restrictive. Sinfully and selfishly, they they wouldn't want to be bound to a woman. They wouldn't want there to be consequences for what they've done. And women, I think, would testify to the protection and provision of these laws. And we must remember that marriage was the means, mainly by which women secured sustenance for their lives in the ancient Near Eastern world. Israel's marriage laws were immensely different than the nations around them. They were far more concerned about the rights and protections of women than the other nations. And the final case of sexual impurity is found there, you'll see in verse 30. It's not likely a case of incest. Rather, it's likely a case of a man having relations with his stepmother. And even so, this is a distortion of the family order and structure. This is actually what happens in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul confronts the church in Corinth about a man who's having a relationship with his father's wife. And Paul effectively yells at the church in Corinth, saying, you cannot allow him, claiming... To go on, go on claiming that he is a brother. You cannot allow him. Go on claiming that he is is part of Jesus' family. You must make a statement to the world that believers do not give themselves to sexual immorality. Rather, they give themselves to purity in their personal relationships. And Paul actually commands to hand the man over to Satan so that his soul may be saved. So... We do not operate in the same manner as the old covenant community does. So the church does not stone people when they commit adultery. But they do, according to the Apostle Paul, put people out of their fellowship for unrepentant sin. Paul commands that they hand the man over to Satan and that they do it positively so that his soul may be saved. It's for a good reason. For the man's salvation. Paul calls for for purity in the church. He calls for purity in the lives of the individual members of the church because we, as Christians, we are united to Jesus Christ. Christian, this is a concept that you really need to stick in your mind. We are united to Jesus Christ. You, as a whole person, body and soul, 
are united to the whole Christ, body and soul. You are united to Jesus who has been raised bodily and, and with his body and soul from the dead. And this is why you will be raised body and soul on the day of judgment. The people of God are still called to pursue purity in our personal relationships. And this word from Moses, I think, is still relevant to us today. Sadly, sexual sin in its various forms still occurs in our world today. In these matters, it is important that we as believers give a faithful witness to God's holiness and purity. It is important because we are giving testimony in our lives to God's faithful and pure love for sinners. It is also important to remember that the church has a bridegroom who will never leave us or forsake us. See, Jesus doesn't have to be told, now you can't divorce her all your days. No, Jesus will never do that to his people. Jesus loves his people. He will never leave us or forsake us. It is because we have been and are those who know the faithful love of Jesus that we can minister to those who have been impacted by sexual sin in this world. Not only that, but we can and should comfort others with the truth that Jesus pursues the healing and holiness of his people. We've thought about the overarching principles of purity. We've taken an in-depth look at the subject of purity with respect to personal relationships and those especially related to the immediate family. Now in chapter 23, verses 1 to 14, we take a look at purity with respect to the broader covenant community. Remember, the people of Israel were a, a broader group of people called to live holy lives, holy and pure lives before the Lord. So this is our third and final point, purity in the covenant community. As we do this, I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 to 14. And, and, and as I do... I want you to pay attention to something as we read. Pay close attention for the concern that for the assembly of who may and who may not enter the assembly. Who may and who may not enter the assembly. Let's read Deuteronomy 23 verses 1 to 14. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. But instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loved you, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If a man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. 
You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Well, I wonder if you can see in these verses the principles of God's people as living distinct from the world, as those who live according to His design and in accordance with His holy character. In all likelihood, in verse 1, we were probably a little startled. Uh, what we're looking at here is probably deliberate bodily mutilation. This has probably not occurred by an accident, but on purpose. Even if what, we, what is described here is a, a natural bodily deformity, deformity or if it occurred uh, on accident, we do learn from other places in the Pentateuch, such as Leviticus chapter 21, verse 20, that citizens with deformities could not gather with the assembly for worship. God requires a, a, a wholeness and purity of His people because He is a perfectly pure and holy God. Men of Israel were to bear the sign of covenant communion with God on their bodies. Men of Israel bore the sign of covenant communion with God in circumcision. The kind of bodily mutilation that is likely in view here was in the very least a removal of that sign of the covenant. And should men remove the sign, that sign of the covenant from their bodies, then they were not allowed to enter the covenant assembly. The covenant assembly, by the way, here refers in all likelihood to the, the formal gatherings of Israel in the worship of God. This act of bodily mutilation may have also been associated with the worship of pagan deities. And so the, the prohibition here uh, may also be the prevention of any kind of syncretism in the worship of God. Um, the covenant assembly uh, is, is to be, just as God is himself, a reflection of his holiness and purity. The repeated concern of these verses is, in fact, purity and holiness and cleanliness of the covenant community. And so, if we're honest about verse 1 and really verses 2 through 8, I think that if we think about them, they might get under our skin a little bit. We do not like the idea of exclusion these days, do we? To think that God excluded some from His gathering, the public worship assembly, is a hard idea for us to wrap our minds around. Why were children from illegitimate unions excluded? Why are other ethnicities excluded? The, the, the children, they couldn't help. Their parents did not abide by God's law. It's of little comfort to us to read in verse 4 that the Ammonites and Moabites were, were, not, were excluded not on the grounds of their ethnicity, but on the grounds of their mistreatment of God's people in the past. Egyptians and Edomites are, are welcomed in at, at different times due to their past history and relationship with Israel, uh, these things can, can kind of get in under our skin. And as we think about these exclusions, uh, a few things must be borne in mind. Though these individuals could not enter into the public worship of God, uh, either forever or after a period of time, it does not mean that they could not live within or, or be welcomed in Israel. In other words, the overriding concern here is for the purity of the public worship of God. The covenant community could very well welcome a Moabite in. Just think of Ruth for a moment. Ruth, she was a, a Moabite and she was welcomed in as a citizen of Israel. So while there, while there were exclusions, there were also exceptions 
for those who came to love and trust and serve the God of Israel. With Ruth, we remember that she was even Jesus' great, 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 add a few more greats in there, she was Jesus' great-grandmother. What's more, this exclusion of the people, of people on the basis of bodily mutilation or being descended from a particular ethnicity is not to be practiced in the New Covenant people. It was practiced in the Old Covenant for the preservation of purity of worship, but with the coming of Jesus Christ, things have radically changed. Just consider the fact that one of the first converts to Christianity that we read about in Acts chapter 8 was the Ethiopian eunuch. In other words, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1, he would have been one who was barred from the public worship assembly. But now he is welcomed in because of Jesus. Consider that in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul teaches us that in Jesus Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been torn down. We are now gathering as, congr as a congregation of citizens, not of one nation. We are gathering as a congregation of citizens, not of one nation, but of many nations. Our identity is not fundamentally rooted in any earthly kingdom. No, our identity as believers in Jesus is fundamentally rooted in the kingdom of heaven because we are united to the heavenly king. Consider that our future is portrayed in Revelation as one where we will be gathering around the throne of Jesus with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And we now, today, get to picture that. We get to be a foretaste for the world to see of what it will look like to worship the heavenly king in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, from these lofty heights, we descend into the gross depths of verses 10 to 14. And here, we're not really concerned so much about the public assembly, so much as we're concerned with the camp of Israelite warriors preparing to head into battle. There is, however, a common connection between the two. Just as citizens of Israel were to be ceremonially clean, in order to enter into the public assembly, so Israelite warriors were to remain ceremonially clean as they engaged in battle. You see, both public worship and battle were holy matters for the holy God. Now, I'd be delighted to speak with you uh, in depth about verses 10 to 14 uh, after the service, but I think the matters are rather obvious. Uh, we should be careful not to be engrossed by what might gross us out. Uh, there is a significant principle at work here. Depending on how you read verse 10, neither semen nor urine nor excrement are to be on the ground in the camp because, verse 14, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Now, uh, God does not have a body like men. God does not have a body like men, so it's not as though God is going to step on these things. Rather, the idea is that God is dwelling with His people. What a glorious gift from God, His presence. Could there, could there be a better gift than for God to live and dwell with His people? That, that is our great hope as Christians, that we will live and dwell in the immediate presence of our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great gift from, from God to live and dwell with His people. That's what is driving this call for purity from His people. Purity is, is not to be pursued just for itself, but for God and being with Him. 
The perfectly pure God is, is with His people. And that is why His people must be perfectly pure. And if they are not, then He cannot be with them. And that, the absence of God's presence, is the most devastating consequence of impurity. That is the great concern of these two chapters. And at one level, this is descriptive of our whole problem of sin. Being unclean is a, a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Our sin separates us from God. We are unclean in the sight of God. And we can't make ourselves clean. We need to be made clean. The problem is, as we prayed earlier this morning, we can't, we can't seem to stop sinning. And we can never really make ourselves clean. We can't clean ourselves up in God's sight. The scriptures, as we've thought about from time to time here, the scriptures say that all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags in God's sight. We need to be made clean, and that is precisely what Jesus came to do. You see, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and literally walked among the uncleanness of this world. Jesus Truly God and truly man in the course of his ministry made the unclean lepers clean. And he does the same for spiritual lepers like you and me. And unlike you and me, Jesus lived the perfectly pure life. He, he lived according to God's design, God's law. He perfectly served his neighbor and all those in need. And in a supreme act of selflessness, he died on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself all of the sins, the uncleanness, the guilt, and the shame of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. So friends, receive Jesus. He is able to save you from all of your impurity in all of its forms. So come to Him. Embrace Him in faith. And He is able to give you His righteousness, His perfect purity. And we know this because God the Father raised Him from the grave three days after His death. He raised Him from the grave, vindicating Him and thus proving to us that He was perfectly pure and righteous and acceptable in God's sight. He was accepted into God's heavenly assembly. And now we receive the riches of His perfect and pure righteousness when we receive Him in faith. When we, when we have Him, we have His presence, the gift of His Holy Spirit, and the assurance that we will be welcomed into God the Father's presence in the heavenly assembly. And this is where I want us to conclude. We began this morning by, by considering the fact that, that in our world we're straining towards purity, but never really attaining it. This is true with our relationship to God as well. We learn from, from Deuteronomy 22 and 23 that purity means that God's people are called to be distinct and different in God's world. They do this by living according to His design, devoted to His loss, and through selfless love and service toward others. And these undergirding principles were then fleshed out, as we saw, in personal relationships and in the broader covenant community. But all in all, as we considered this with our own hearts, and lives, we considered it in light of God's law. And what is plain is that we're not perfectly pure. We're not perfectly pure. But we need to be if we're to be welcomed into God's presence. And the good news is that Jesus is pure. Where our sin has left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews tells us that He has made purification for our sins and that he has sat down 
And He's seated at the right hand of God. The work of our purification is complete. We remember this. It's what we remember and what we proclaim together to ourselves in song and in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. We remember and proclaim He was dead and raised to purify and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And and that He is coming back again so that we might walk with Him in the new heavens and the new earth, which will never be tainted by the impurities of sin and death. That is our hope, because He is our hope. Let's pray together.